You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. When I grew up, I was assured by everyone I knew, from school to everywhere I went, that my father was the king. People wanted him to be the king. Actor Yul Brynner's son, Rock Brynner. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Hey, all you dads. Happy Father's Day weekend. Now, in the 1950s, few actors dominated Broadway the way Yul Brynner did. Playing the lead in the Rodgers and Hammerstein play, The King and I, Brynner established himself as a top-tier performer. One, two, three, and open chance. When the last little star has leave the sky. He won two Tonys for that role, as well as an Oscar later when the play was adapted to film. Later, of course, Yul Brynner was cast in other big-budget movies, including The Ten Commandments. Come to me no more, Moses. For on the day you see my face again, you will surely die. The Magnificent Seven. Guns are very expensive and hard to get. Aren't you hire men? Men? Gunmen. Nowadays, men are cheaper than guns. And Westworld. You say something, boy. I said you talk too much. I had to make me shut up. Now, his son, Rock Brynner, was born in 1946 and was as enthralled and captivated by his father's persona as any of us were. A few years after Yul Brynner's untimely death from lung cancer, Rock Brynner wrote a memoir of Life with a Famous Dad, and that's when I met him. So here now, from 1991, Rock Brynner. For people who know Yul Brynner only by his screen or stage personas, he would seem to us to be a very demanding, very moody, a difficult person to live with. How far off from reality is that perception? That's quite true. Uh, he was a unique character who boasted freely that he had an ego as large as your average-sized aircraft carrier. And... Uh, but the book that I've written about his life traces the change in his character over his life and the change that was affected in his character by the acquisition of power. My book is really a story about power, what, uh, how he acquired it, what it meant to his life, did it bring him happiness, and uh, the changes that it wrought in his personality. And perhaps more so than most biographies, this carries a great deal of the biographer as well as the subject. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's why I found it a good read. Well, thank you. It's, I think, uh, more accurately called a memoir for that reason, uh, although it certainly is once and for all the answer to the question of where Yul Brynner came from and uh, who he was. Yes. Why has his magic lived on for so long? Why, why has he entranced people, not only for the many years that he was entertaining us, but now all these years since he's been gone? Uh, not so much because of his film career as because of the deep and lasting impression that his stage performances uh, created for people. For more than 14 years of his life, he did eight shows a week of The King and I, 
performing for a total of some eight million people live in his life, more than even the Rolling Stones have ever performed for. And it was an extraordinary experience for anyone to be in the audience, in live in the room with this uh, volcanic uh, source of energy and power. The King of Siam, did he make that role or did the role make him? You are a very difficult woman. Perhaps so, Your Majesty. But you'll observe, care that head shall never be higher than mine. When I shall sit, you shall sit. When I shall kneel, you shall kneel. Etc., etc., etc. First of all, it's important to remember he created the role. He created the king. He created the character. Certainly owed nothing to history. And while it owed a great deal to Oscar Hammerstein's brilliant book, it was a collaborative creation in 1951 and that really is is the answer on the other hand by spending 14 years of his life on the road doing the play uh, and on Broadway not all on the road uh, the king in many ways dominated his life demanded that he turn up every evening at 6 p.m. for an 8 o'clock curtain to do the hour and a half of makeup that the role required. So the, the, the role, by its demands, dominated his, his life. And so there was a, a lot of good give and take between Ewell and the king. Over time, did he, be, did he become the king? No, there was, there was always a distinction, and he never lost his mind and confused himself altogether with the character. But the distinctions between the king and the, and the man... Uh, became less important as as life went on, largely because the public uh, insisted upon seeing him as the king, and um, and that had its own effect on his character. It would be easy for the admiring public to imagine that after the end of the show, he comes home, and after being used to for all those years and all those shows, ordering the people in the cast about, as as the, the play requires, that he would come home and, and require you to sit when he sits and kneel when he kneels, etc. To some extent, that was true before he ever played the king. Uh, but, uh, no... Uh, on the contrary, I think to a great extent he exorcised the king in himself by being on stage. And he was always a much gentler and more peaceful man after the show. This is a gentler, more peaceful book than I had initially expected last year when I first opened it up. And I, su I suspect more so than many people will will think when they first pick it up. This is, this is as, as you cleverly put it last year, this is not a daddy dearest. No, it really is not. Uh, first of all, Dad, uh, Mommy Dearest was a, not just a bitchy book by an angry daughter. It was also a horrific story of child abuse, which is often overlooked. Uh, no, there was enormous love between my father and I, and uh, it is much more a study of how a son models himself upon a father and then must distinguish himself from that role model later in life. Uh, but it is a book that I am assured by 
most everyone who reads it is above all brimming with love and and care it's my attempt to make sense of this extraordinary man and the life that he led was that the, the most towering figure you could imagine and you wanted him wanted to be just like him or was he so towering that it was intimidating that you could never be like him uh, first the former and later the latter. Uh, when I grew up, I was assured by everyone I knew from school to everywhere I went that my father was the king. This was true everywhere I went, even in solid democracies like Switzerland or the United States. Uh, people wanted him to be the king. Uh, he was a towering figure, but... Uh, only what was real about that was what grew out of his talent and out of his accomplishment. Uh, everything beyond that was uh, bravado. And uh, that was hard to match, but not necessarily desirable to match either. Would you describe him as a macho man? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And... Uh, <laughs> This was very much part of his character f uh, f from the time he was a young man. I describe in the book my astonishment as a boy when we went out water skiing and uh, someone threw the tow rope to him and it put a two-inch gash in his head. And rather than spoil the day of water skiing, he picked out a fishing hook and some fishing line and put a couple stitches in his head, jumped in the water and went on water skiing. <laughs> Well, I thought this was the way everyone was. I thought this was the way fathers were. Just gender, this was just something that fathers did. And it was a long time before I realized that this man was uh, really as unique as he claimed to be. A Ward Cleaver he was not. No. <laughs> no, nor was I a beaver. <laughs> After this short break, the chilling but life-saving message that Yul Brynner sent from beyond the grave... Now back to my 1991 interview with Rock Brinner. One of the, the, the most uh, poignant passages of your book is, is describing the way you felt when you first saw him die on stage mm -hmm. and not being able to necessarily distinguish as clearly as you wanted to that he was not actually dying. It has been said by one who has been trained for royal... What made it difficult, I was only six years old at the time, was to be in a theater filled with 2,000 adults who were crying. And I knew perfectly clearly the distinction, uh, but they did not. And so if I was to be a member of the audience for that moment, then I too had to be swept up with the, uh, with the grief at his death. I have to come back. There, there's so much... There, there's fun in this book. This is not just, here's my father, he was a great man, this is what he did. You had fun in, the, in, in, the, in the, the, the doing of your life, the writing of the book, uh, the, the going on tour, talking about the book. This is, it makes me feel good to be interviewing you. Oh, that's nice. Uh, it's a book that uh, I hope makes people laugh and makes people cry. And from the uh, many hundreds of letters that I've now had, 
uh, I know that people really do respond that way, and it's very gratifying to know that, because that's what life with him was like. It was filled with mirth and laughter, especially the years when, for example, we lived with Sinatra uh, in the early 60s during the Rat Pack years, and those were crazed on that way, and it's very gratifying to know that, because that's what life with him was like. It was filled with mirth and laughter, especially the years when, for example, we lived with Sinatra uh, in the early 60s during the Rat Pack years. And those were crazy, wild times uh, that were all playful, and the problems that ensued, for example, alcoholism, uh, in myself, as well as that whole crew. I mean, those were days when you know, Sinatra's motto was, you know, let's go over to the polio lounge and get crippled, and uh, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. And, I mean, it was, it was that, those kinds of times. The consequences were much harder to deal with in later decades. And, of course, tragically, we look back now, we didn't know then, but now we know that what smoking would do as well. Yes, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, the late Yul Brynner. I really wanted to make a commercial when I discovered that I was that sick and my time was so limited. I wanted to make that commercial that says simply, now that I'm gone, I tell you, don't smoke. Whatever you do, just don't smoke. I don't know if you've had a chance to see the new uh, commercial. That I haven't I've done seen it yet. I've heard all about it though. for the American Cancer Society. But uh, my father's anti-smoking commercial had such an impact and really saved lives that I wanted to find a way to bring it back. It was beginning to seem like old hat, and stations weren't playing it anymore. So we've done a revised version of it, which goes from Yule speaking, as he says in the commercial, uh, now that I'm dead, I just want to tell you, whatever you do, stop smoking. And you cut to me saying that was my father five years ago, shortly before his death from lung cancer. A few months later, my mother died as a result of emphysema. Five years later, my parents are still dead. Are you still smoking? And so this is really just a way of bringing back uh, his commercial. And uh, I hope it has as much effect as the original commercial. It is amazing how much impact just a few well-chosen words from someone who, who's greatly loved can have. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And what a powerful figure when you see Yul Brynner on that screen telling you, to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, I never started to begin with, but if I had been a smoker, I would have quit. <laughs> yeah, many, many people did. Many people did. Wow. What led you to write this book in the first place? As I said, I needed to make sense of this extraordinary experience of growing up uh, with in the presence of this unique man uh, and to make sense of what power did for his life. He uh, sought power very young, he acquired it very young, and yet, as I watched, it did not seem to me that power brought much happiness to his life. In fact, uh, it seemed to bring so many demands of its own that it deprived him of most of the joy of life. And as my parents died just a few months apart, it was uh, inevitable that I would compare how their lives concluded and who really achieved the greater 
serenity and joy of life. And uh, my father's death was pr particularly horrific. And my mother's was uh, particularly admirable. And so as a way of making sense of all this, as you know, I'm an historian anyway at Columbia University, just now completing my PhD, and I needed to integrate all that to make sense of my own life and to see really which role model, the macho hero of the world or the gentle and contemplative uh, spirit that my mother offered to me as a role model, which was more valuable to follow. Have you succeeded in sorting it out for yourself? Are you satisfied to yourself that, that you have answered the questions that you had? I am three years have, after having finished the first draft of this book, I remain very, very proud and satisfied that the book itself, uh, the writing of the book, uh, required me to make sense of it all and, uh, and has brought me great peace of mind. At age 75, Rock Brinner has now lived 10 years longer than his father did. Rock is a history professor. And you can find easy Amazon links to Rock Brinner's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, check out my 1990 interview with Jack Benny's daughter, Joan Benny. My father, George Burns, Gary Cooper, John Wayne, you name all of those people, they paid their dues. They had bit parts. They worked their way up slowly. The fame really didn't go to their heads. And my 2006 conversation with Rain Pryor the daughter of Richard Pryor. Everyone's so related to him, and I think that's why people loved him, is that he was so truthful and so brought those people alive that you just wanted to laugh with him and hug him. And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thank you for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, another big movie star from the 1950s, my 2005 interview with Tab Hunter. The audiences were changing. They were more youth-oriented audiences then. They were ready for Tab Hunter. Well, not only for Tab Hunter, for Natalie Wood, Jimmy <laughs> Dean, Tony Curtis. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.